Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'd like to say a special thank you to our kids uh, for leading us in our service this morning. Somebody asked me uh, just before the service began if I was ready to roll. Um, I don't know if they knew that that was going to be literal or not, but got wheels on the bottom of this thing now. Anyhow, I think we've got a video clip to begin our service. Can we roll that, Mark? There we go. So why do people reply to spam emails? You know, I mean, it's odd, isn't it, given the fact that they are preposterous. And they are preposterous. I got your contact from a South African health officer in Ghana. I find that unlikely. <laughs> I need to move with a thousand carats of polished diamond. Equally unlikely. Note this transaction is 100% risk-free and does not attract any danger. <laughs> Commander Karoma. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I mean, this is ridiculous, right? And it's, it's funny that anyone would reply to it, but if you think about it, this is actually rather clever, because by making the scams ridiculous, ideally for the scammer, the only people who are going to reply are the most gullible people. And me. I said, I'm in. <laughs> then he told me to email Liberty Law Firm at lawfirm.co.uk, which is an amazing email address. Then he said, send me your phone number. So I, uh, I gave him the phone number of Goldman Sachs, the bank. <laughs> I wanted him to think I was rich. I probably shouldn't have done that, because the next email I got said, James Veach, I'm not sure you are real at all. <laughs> you gave me phone numbers of a bank, which I call, and they say that you are not real, that they don't know you. They even advised me... Army intelligence. Is that, a, is that a thing? I didn't know what to say. I said, look, there was never a shred of doubt in my mind that I was dealing with an intelligence. <laughs> how can I prove to you that I'm real? I mean, how can you prove that you're real? In truth, how can any of us prove that we are real? Yes, what are you sending me? I've forgotten. <laughs> he said the contents of the consignment is a thousand carats of rough diamonds worth seven point. Can we just go to the next slide? You and I this goes on for quite some time. Thanks. I think we've all received these emails or even phone calls at some point, haven't we? I, I got one uh, in the midst of a staff meeting. I didn't answer it, but I. I check my voicemail after the staff meeting. It was this robot voice informing me something about tax fraud and the police were going to arrest me. And I've had that one a couple times. I'm sure some of you have as well. Many of these things are so ridiculous that they're kind of funny. But, right, how do we, the question he asked at the end, how can we know that this is real or not? Right? Well, usually there's a lot of hints. 
that something like this is not real. Uh, the emails are full of spelling mistakes and, and inconsistencies. The return email addresses are gibberish or nonsense rather than actual emails. Or, or the contents are just so ridiculous that we know we're just dealing with a scam because they don't even make sense. Most of us know when we're dealing with a scam and we just ignore it. We don't have to ask that question very hard of how can I know whether this is real or not. We just ignore it unless we're that guy and then we play along and try to scam the scammers. If, if you find that clip, eventually he, he irritates them so much that they send him an email saying, please don't email us anymore. It's, it's quite funny. But that question, how, how can I know? How can I know this? It's actually somewhat relevant to our discussion today. And so I, uh, I have some helpers that are going to help us with our scripture presentation today that are going to come up. Um, because this question comes up in our story for today. How can I know that this is real? How can I know that this is actually a thing? How can I know that you're telling the truth? It's easy to know when something is for real, or at least it should be, when it's a badly done scam. It's not always so easy to know when it's direction from God that calls you in an unlikely direction. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and both were very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. And you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to, to turn the hearts of the parents to their child and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord and I have 
to speak to you and tell you this good news. And you will be silent and not be able to speak until this day happens because you do not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So all the Gospels have their own, their own flavor, of course. But Luke has that certain historical flair for details. This happened at a specific place and a specific time to specific people. Luke records details here. Herod was the king when this happened. Zechariah was a priest. He was a priest in the priestly division of Abijah. His wife was also of the daughters of Aaron from a priestly family. This, this, isn't, this isn't presented to us as some sort of legend or fable or as an allegory. This is a historical account. Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were righteous before God, it says. And I think the word righteous, it can get quite an awfully, quite an awfully bad name in some Christian circles. We, we, we sometimes harp on, well, there's no one righteous, no, not one. And, and we sometimes equate the word righteous with self-righteous or with, with legalistic. But the text here means to say that this, this couple was following the Lord faithfully. It says they kept the ways of God blamelessly. So let, let's not be self-righteous in our efforts to sniff out self-righteousness. He means to say they were good people who loved the Lord, walked faithfully with him, cared for the people around him. These, this couple would have been the kind of people you would want to live as neighbors on your street or to sit next to you in the pew at church or to be part of your small group. And yet, they had a problem, particularly in their own culture. They, they had a considerable problem in that they had no children. And for Zechariah, this would have been considered unfortunate, regrettable. But for Elizabeth, this would have been considered a failure in who she was as a person. However, given what the text just said, Luke does take a step back, at least from the prevailing view in the Jewish culture of the time. Because this view assumed that being unable to have children and a lot of the other inexplicable things that befell people, people assumed that was the result of something you did wrong or maybe something your ancestors did wrong, that you were cursed, basically. But Luke affirms that, that no, they were righteous people. They loved the Lord. They followed him faithfully. But they had this problem. And worse, they're old. We don't know exactly how old. There's an obscure law in the book of Numbers about Levites more or less retiring from their duties at the temple at age 50. That may not have applied to Levites who were also priests, or it may not have been a law or a custom that they continued to follow at this time. It seems like the rabbis, from what they said in this period, 
sort of understood 65 as when it was appropriate for a man to be considered an, an old man. Um, whatever age they are, it seems clear from this story, though, that biologically speaking, they are past the age when they could expect to have children. And that has some echoes of where we've been recently in these last months with the story of Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? Nevertheless, despite all this, Zechariah finds himself being given a great honor. Again, Luke makes it clear that these people are not being cursed by God for something they've done wrong. Despite not being able to have children, uh, the Lord sees fit to bestow on Zechariah a great honor. And it is a great honor. Because at this time, there were so many priests in Israel, right? You, you just think about it. Each generation, people had lots of, of kids, and, and priest, uh, the priesthood was a, a clan, a family-based thing. Uh, so after a number of generations go by, you've got a lot of people that are Levites and a lot of people that are priests. They couldn't just all serve at the temple. There were so many of them. So they would live in their villages for the most part throughout the year and they were divided up into groups and you would serve for a week or two, travel to Jerusalem, do uh, the temple services and return to your village back home. Sort of like attending a mod at the seminary here. That's, that's how it was done. And even so, in each of these priestly divisions, there were still so many people that even being able to do something at the temple, especially any of the significant duties like offering the incense and the prayers, you'd have to draw lots to see who got to do those things. But Zechariah was fortunate. He was drawn by lot to offer incense, either at the time of the morning sacrifice or the evening sacrifice. He had probably waited his whole life, and he's old now, but he waited his whole life to do something this significant in his career, in his role, in his vocation as a priest. And finally, this great honor is bestowed upon him. It would have been the highlight of his career. And just a little refresher further on how things worked at the temple. Most of what happened in the temple didn't actually happen in the temple building itself. The temple in Jerusalem was a series of courtyards within courtyards. The, the majority of the worship and the people gathering happened outside in the open air in the courtyards. Not just anybody could walk and go inside the actual temple building itself. So people gathered for worship in the courtyards, the sacrifices were offered out in the courtyards. Only priests actually went inside the temple building itself. The temple building had two rooms, an outer room and an inner room. The outer room was called the holy place and the inner room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now people only went in there once a year and that was only the high priest that would go in there on the day of atonement. In the holy place, the, the outer room inside the temple building, priests would go every day to offer the sacrifices or to put the incense there and change out the, the bread of the presence. And the incense, of course, was to symbolize the prayers of the people rising up before God. So that's what Zechariah uh, essentially wins the lottery to be able to do. He's going to go in there, he's going to sprinkle the incense on the, the fire or the hot coals of the altar and it's going to smoke and go up before God and he's going to offer the prayers of the people. Once he's completed that, he's going to go back outdoors into the courtyard of the temple and uh, say the blessing or the benediction over the people. That's the plan. That's what he's going to do. And this would be, again, the pinnacle of his career. He gets to go inside the holy place 
This is the, the closest, physically speaking, that he's ever going to be able to get to the presence of God. He's going to say the prayers that God will deliver and bless his people. And then he's going to get to go out and offer the benediction over the gathered worshipers. And then it happened. He's sprinkling the little incense bits on the altar there. And the smoke is rising up before the Lord. And suddenly he realizes he's not alone in there. He's supposed to be alone. Nobody else is supposed to go in there. That can be scary enough. I'm sure we've all had that experience uh, where you inadvertently sneak up on your spouse. You're sure that they've heard you coming up the stairs and they haven't and you say something and startle them or somebody's done that to you and you jump and or anybody that's ever done uh, night lockup duties around this place knows that that can be a creepy and scary experience especially if you're walking around in the dark here and somebody's kind of just lurking in the shadows for no apparently good reason and you didn't know they were there that can be scary and and to add to that it's not just another person that's in there with Zechariah it's it's a being from I guess we could say another dimension, right? An angel of the Lord. That's bound to be startling. That's bound to have frightened him. But I suspect, I suspect there's deeper fears at work why the angel tells him, fear not. Particularly, the text gives us a clue because the assurance, fear not, is followed by further assurance. Your prayer has been heard. So what prayer is the angel pointing to here? Well, presumably, Zechariah and Elizabeth, like many couples throughout the ages who have had difficulty conceiving, would have prayed that God would give them a child. So there's that prayer. Uh, those prayers. All of those prayers. Years, no doubt, of prayers on this one topic. But then, of course, there are the prayers that Zechariah would have been praying at that very moment as he was offering the incense. We don't know precisely what those prayers were, but whatever liturgy they used, it would have been based in Israel's scriptures. It would have been based in things like the message and prayers of the, the prophet Isaiah that we heard uh, read this morning when we lit the Advent candles. It would have been based in the message and prayers like what we read last week. Remember from Isaiah chapter 2 that there was coming a day when the mountain of the Lord would be established as the greatest of all the mountains and out of Zion would go the law and the people would come streaming in and God would bless and restore his people. The day of the Lord, that the deliverer would come to Zion. Redemption, salvation, fulfillment of God's promises, holiness and righteousness, light in the darkness. And peace. So in light of all of that, what, what is Zechariah ultimately afraid of? Right? What, if he gets down into the, the deep, dark recesses of his soul, the part that's got a signpost on it that says, here be dragons, where he doesn't like to go very often, and we all have that part somewhere down deep inside of us where there's, there's deep, dark things that lurk. What's he afraid of? way down there, afraid of in a way that he might not even be able to fully articulate it. I think it's this. He spent years praying that the Lord would do a, a relatively small thing for him and for his wife and would give them a child. 
And yet, in response to all those prayers over all those years, he's seen precisely zero response. And here he is, standing in the very presence of the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem at what is supposed to be the pinnacle of his calling and his vocation as a priest of the Lord. And he's supposed to be praying that the Lord is going to do these mighty and awesome and incredible things and deliver his people finally and completely. Do you see how there might be a little bit of a struggle there? If God isn't even going to do this little thing that he spent years praying for, what, what hope does he have that God is going to do this huge and incredible thing? And who is he that God should answer such prayers? He was afraid that perhaps God just wasn't listening to him. Or if he was, he wasn't going to answer. I think I would have been too. And so, the angel Gabriel delivers his message. Both of these prayers of Zechariah, they're going to be answered. They're going to come true. Elizabeth, though she is not exactly a young woman anymore, is going to have a son. And moreover, that son, once he grows up, is going to be the one who finally kickstarts all of God's plans back into action, as it were. He's going to be the one who's going to go before the Lord in the, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Right? It says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What's that all about? Well, in a nutshell, it's this. God is about to act. People of Israel have been waiting roughly 400 years for something like this to happen. 400 years without any prophets, without any significant and authoritative revelation from God. 400 years where it seems like whatever he was doing in his plans has just dropped off the map. 400 years where it seems that his people are just left hung out to dry at the mercy of whatever pagan oppressors feel like stomping on them this time around. And yet in the midst of that darkness, somehow it seems that they never quite lost hope that one day it would change. They held on for dear life to the words of the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi. That's what's quoted here. Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then again, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Right? You see what's happening here? We're, it's like, I know it's not in the age of Netflix and everything now, that the idea of a two-parter episode where you had to wait a week to see what was going to happen. But it wasn't that long ago that's a thing. Some of us who are younger, that might be a struggle to remember. But older folks remember when that's how television all worked. And you'd get one of those, or sometimes they'd even do it a season cliffhanger, right? Where it would end, the whole season would be to be continued. And you'd have to wait till next season 
to see how this was going to turn out. And what would they always do? They'd recap what happened last time on your favorite television program. They'd run a little clip of it and get to where it left off, and then the action would start again. That's what the angel Gabriel is essentially doing here. He's quoting the last little bit of the Old Testament and saying, and now this is going to get going again. Now the conclusion of this story, this thing you've been hoping for, for 400 years. We're picking up where we left off, says Gabriel. And Zechariah, your son is going to be that messenger. And then who comes? The Lord himself. However, Zechariah has some doubts. Is this, is this for real? How, how can I know? Because maybe this is just too good to be true. As I mentioned just a little bit ago, we've spent the better part of the last three months walking with Abraham. So I'm sure that some of these parallels are not lost on you. This elderly couple that couldn't have children and is now past the age where they could hope to do so. Receiving a promise from God about a miraculous son through whom the promises of God are going to be carried on, right? This son who in some sense will bring the Lord's promise and blessing to their next stage of fulfillment. Remember back in Genesis 15? The Lord there made a promise to Abraham that he would have descendants and a homeland. And once the promises were made, Abraham asked this very same question. How can I know this, Lord? He said the exact same thing that Zechariah says. And yet, the response is quite different. If you remember back to Genesis 15, Abraham asked, Whoa, whoa, how can I know this, Lord? And you remember the weird story about the animals getting offered and cut in pieces and laid out. And, and there, the Lord unilaterally guaranteed the covenant. If you remember, it was only the Lord whose presence passed between the cut-up sacrifices. Abraham didn't have to do that. And we talked about how that meant that Abraham wasn't responsible for the accomplishment and the guarantee of the covenant. The Lord was guaranteeing that he would fulfill the covenant and the Lord was taking on the curses should the covenant fail. Yeah, in that story, a, a gracious, incredibly gracious response. For Zechariah, however, the Lord via the angelic messenger, has kind of a word of judgment, or, or at least we should say a word of rebuke, for sure. So, so what's going on there? Same question. Well, first of all, Zechariah has the benefit of centuries of Israel's history and scriptures that Abraham did not have. He has the benefit of knowing the story of Abraham and Sarah and how that turned out. And, and, and Jacob and Rachel and Hannah and Elkanah, just to name a few. This, this whole thing of this couple that was unable to have children and was possibly even getting along in years and then the Lord miraculously providing for them. That was a thing in Israel's history that you should have probably clued into. There's this theme of God overcoming a couple's infertility in order to raise up a deliverer for his people. It happens over and over again in Scripture. And the other thing with Zechariah is, is he should have known how signs work. Now there are instances when it's important and even necessary that you should require a sign if a prediction that seems pretty far out there is made. 
the, the need for a sign involved the issue in the Old Testament of distinguishing a true prophet from a false prophet. A prophet could easily rise up. Anybody could rise up and say, oh, thus says the Lord, and then make some crazy far-out prediction of something that was going to happen a long time in the future. How do you know if you should listen to what that prophet has to say? How do you know whether you should bring your life into alignment with what he's telling you to do? And so there was this requirement that if a prophet made a prediction like that, he should also provide a sign that would validate his message. And a sign was a shorter term prediction, usually something that would happen within a year so that people could judge whether the prophet was a true prophet of the Lord or whether he was not. So the, the sign was a shorter term prediction, within a year usually, that would validate a longer term prediction. So here's what happens in this story. The angel comes and he makes the longer term prediction. He says, when this baby grows up, he's going to be the messenger of the Lord. He's going to have this ministry of turning people back to the Lord their God and kickstarting God's plan for the ages into action. And so the shorter term sign that that was going to be the case was that this child would have a miraculous birth, a miraculous conception, I guess we should say, right? This is going to happen within this next year or so, we would presume. So by questioning that and kind of asking the Lord for something to validate that, Zechariah is sort of asking for a sign to confirm the sign. So that's kind of a problem. Second thing is that the idea of asking for a sign was supposed to be so that you could judge whether a human messenger's words were true or not. That's right and appropriate. People say things all the time that sometimes are true and false or a mixture of those. And we have to discern whether that's true. Sometimes it's appropriate to doubt the pronouncements that people make or to question them or wonder if they're true or obey them or not or reject them or take what they say on board. That's right and appropriate and different circumstances require different responses to what people say. But you can't do that when the word comes from the Lord himself. God's words will, this text reminds us, be fulfilled in their time. The only thing you can do with God's words, is the only right thing anyhow, is to believe them and then act on that faith. And so we know the story. Zechariah is struck mute until their son is born. And it's only when he takes the step of faith and confirms that they will name the boy John, the, angel that, or the name that the angel gave, that's when Zechariah is able to speak once again. Now here's the thing. Zechariah is, is in some sense punished. It's safe to say that. The angel Gabriel is quite stern in his rebuke. He said, you're not going to be able to speak because you didn't believe my words. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. I know what I'm talking about. And you didn't believe me, so you're not going to talk for some time now. But the punishment is not arbitrary. Maybe more accurate to call it discipline. It's a hard thing. It's the thing he needed. He needed to spend several months in quiet and take some time to think and meditate. Have the Lord do some, some deep work in him. So here it is, Advent. We come from, from different backgrounds in how we celebrate the, the seasons of the Christian year, or maybe how we're not familiar with that, and that's fine. 
One thing I would say, though, is that preparing for Christmas and Advent are not precisely the same thing. Advent is a deeper kind of heart preparation. This week, I got a mailbox full of flyers. Did anyone else get a mailbox full of flyers? Specifically, did anyone get a whole mailbox of like three Canadian tire flyers, big, thick, fat ones? I did. And at the top of all those Canadian tire flyers, do you know what it said? It says, Canada's Christmas store. Now, I guess props to Canadian Tire for actually using the word Christmas. That, that's something. But at the same time, if we think at all deeply about this, we go, okay, even the Grinch taught us that Christmas doesn't come from a store, right? There's nothing wrong with lights and decorations and festivity and staff Christmas parties. We'll prepare our homes and our tables and our shopping lists, and that's fine. We'll prepare for Christmas one way or another. But will we just kind of go with the flow and get swept up in the noise and busyness and the whole culture of consumerism, materialism? Or will we push back against that a little bit and tend to our souls and quiet and peace and expectancy? Does all this have to do with Zechariah? Just this. He had his ability to speak taken away from him. There was a sort of stripping away of of clutter and noise, at least what he generated himself, that was taken and stripped away from him, that was forced on him. While it was a punishment of sorts, it was also for his own good. I wonder whether we might take a lesson from that, the kind of quieting down of his life wasn't something that was natural to him. It kind of had to be forced upon him. And I wonder if we can learn a lesson there. Most of the things that would do us the most good are actually simple things. They, they may not actually even be that hard. At a very basic level, not talking should be easier than talking because not talking doesn't burn as many calories and require as much energy at a very basic level, right? Should be easier, but I digress. What's hard often, more likely, is cultivating the the space and the time to actually do the things that would do us the most good, which actually are not hard in and of themselves. Cultivating the space and time for those things is often more of a struggle. So we're going to conclude with some time for prayer. First, though, we're, we're, going to be, we're going to be quiet. Many of us in, in this community, many of us make our living by saying words, by writing words, but especially by saying words. We teach, we counsel people, we coach, we answer phones, we attend meetings, we present at meetings, we make presentations in our classes. It's a lot of words. We say a lot of words. So we're going to begin our prayer time, as we always should, of course, by, by turning toward God. And then in that silence, I want us to ask two, two questions, kind of sides of the same coin, I think. First one, 
Is there some prayer that we've prayed many times, maybe in the past, but maybe we've stopped praying that prayer because we wonder whether God will actually grant it or whether he actually hears it? I'm not talking about those things that we've received a clear sense in one way or another from the Lord that that this request just isn't his will for us and he's leading us in a different direction. I'm talking about those things where it's more our fears that have led us to stop praying in a certain direction and, and into certain things. Or where they, our fears have led us maybe not to stop praying, but to pray for progressively smaller and smaller things and expect less and less from God in some of those areas. and Maybe even stop praying altogether. Are there areas in our lives of faith and prayer where we'd actually kind of be astounded and and even maybe disbelieving if the Lord actually showed up and answered the prayer we've been praying? We'd be like, I don't know about this, Lord. If God brings some such things to mind, then, then I encourage you to talk to him about that. Pray for fresh courage and fresh grace to go back to or to continue praying for that thing that maybe you've stopped. The second question I was asked, is there some new area where God is calling you to faithfulness in prayer? Perhaps some inkling of something you should start praying about or praying into or praying toward. You don't have it fully formed yet, but you sense maybe God is calling you to something and you need to pray about that. But you're afraid because you don't know what's going to happen if you start praying about that thing. We do the thing, right? Where if I start praying about this, is God going to call me to do something that'll make me miserable or that's going to be terrible or that's going to just upset my life in some major way? But you can't shake the idea that God wants you to start praying about that. Or maybe you're afraid that if you start praying about this thing, what if God doesn't answer it right away? What if... What if this is going to be one of those persistence in prayer things that you have to keep praying about for a long time without seeing anything? Or maybe you're afraid, what if I start praying this prayer for this thing and I quickly get the sense that God is calling me to to take a major part in being an answer to that prayer, right? So I'll allow a little bit of space and time for some reflection in silence on those things. And then we'll conclude with some prayer. I'll wrap it up and and we'll pray as we typically do for different things, uh, needs within our community and so forth. But I'll allow a little bit of time for reflection. And at first it might be a little bit awkward, but I encourage you, push through that and see if there's something that the Lord does lay on your heart in these moments. Let's pray.